Dear God, we thank you so much for this time together. We thank you that we get to learn from your word in fellowship. Please open our hearts to the presence of your spirit and the reality of your love. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be honoring and pleasing to you, Lord Christ. Amen. So Trevor and I have three wonderful nieces. And the two eldest at eight and six love to play store. So you go in their bedroom and there's this whole apparatus of like their toys, things they've made, things they've found. And then there's this whole game system around like barter and trade and sale of this store. And so it's probably about a year ago, we went to go visit and their dad, Trevor's older brother, over to see this sign that Alice, the middle one, who she's probably about five at the time, had made for the store. And it just says in bold pink marker, nothing is free. (laughs) She gets it and I love it. (laughs) And so I couldn't help myself as I was reading through Galatians and preparing for this sermon, I just kept thinking of this sign that nothing is free phrases and images that Paul uses in Galatians and really throughout his letters to teach about the grace of God is this idea of Christ's gift of Christ's self to us. It's a gift. And he shows throughout his letters and his teachings how this gift of Christ radically changes everything we know about ourselves and the world around us. So if I was to ask you, what makes a good gift, right? What makes a good gift? You might say that it's thoughtful, maybe it's spontaneous, it's given without expectation, it's given without wanting something back, right? It's a a lovely, it's a free gift. But a lot of times I find in, in our world, in our society, this concept of a free gift feels few and far between. More often, I feel we function in Alice's store where nothing is free, right? We, we see our politics, we see our justice system, we see our education system, we see our social hierarchy, and it is deeply reciprocal, deeply quid pro quo. And I think this changes the way that we can really understand the idea of a gift because we sort of, we shroud ourselves in cynicism of like, what's the catch? What's the monthly fee that you're going to change without telling me, right? Like, we have all these safeguards around ourselves. But that's us, right? That's our very modern conception of gifts. What would Paul's readers have thought? What did they think of gifts? Now, so much of this sermon is very thankfully kind of tilled out of John Barclay's book, Paul and the Gift, which Tim super thankfully turned me on to uh, when I started preparing for this sermon. And one of the things that he identifies is we really cannot read this idea of Christ as gift if we don't understand what an ancient reader or hearer would have thought of gifts, right? So thankfully, we can pivot over to Seneca. Now, Seneca who I'm sure you all know, right, is a first century Stoic philosopher who wrote an entire treatise on gift giving. A good time, right? De Beneficia, on benefit. And so he wrote this treatise, and there's a couple 
things we can pull out of it. And so one is that the concept of gift giving is done with great discernment to worthy individuals with the purpose of developing social bonds and connections, right? So discerning only to those that are worthy for the purpose of social bonds and connections. So gifts were very functional and very purposeful. A little different than our, our free gift concept that is very modern, right? It's a very modern concept. The other part about gift giving that Seneca says that I love is that the voluntary and reciprocal practice of giving gifts is what holds society together. Now, I'll be the first to say, this is likely a little bit like overstated for sure, but I still want us for the purpose of this sermon and this context to really hold on to the potential of that, that the voluntary and reciprocal practice of gift giving is what's tying this ancient society together. So as we move into Galatians, I want you to kind of like pin this little intro over. We're going to hold on to it and we're going to come back to it. Because again, if we want to understand the depth and the power of this image of Christ as gift, we need to put it into this context. Because what Christ does is he takes this common practice and totally perfects it makes it be so much larger and greater than what it ever was, which is a theme I think we see through so many things about Christ's ministry. So let's orient ourselves to Galatians, right? So Galatians, it's a letter. It's a letter to the churches of Galatia, right? So we're not looking at group of churches. So these would have been churches that Paul founded during his first missionary journey as part of his mission to the Gentiles, right? And so this would have been around northern central Turkey, if you're a geography person and like that. And so Paul would have established these churches. He's back home. And all of a sudden starts getting word that something is wrong. And one of the ways as a leader that you could try to get people back on track was to write a letter, right? So what was wrong? What was happening in Galatia that merited this letter? So what was happening was false doctrine. Right, so a false doctrine had taken hold in a lot of the churches that Christians needed to follow the law in order to be righteous and obtain salvation. Specifically, Gentile Christians needed to get in line and follow the law. Now, it's really good to note here that we don't get our modern like, labeling on this. So when he's talking about law in this letter, we're not talking about like more modern practices of works righteousness or that concept of the law, what we're really looking at is Torah observance. Very specifically, we're looking at practices around circumcision and table fellowship, who you can and cannot hang out with. So this false doctrine is starting to take root in the church, and Paul is not here for it, right? This is not okay. So what he wants to do is write this letter to pull the people back in line, and say, that's not it. That is not the gospel. What our gospel is, is a gospel rooted in the faithfulness of Christ who gave himself for us as evidence in the Christ event of the crucifixion and resurrection. It's right here. This is where we're going. So he writes this letter. And what I love about this letter 
is Paul is so fired up. He is like full tilt, pedal to the metal, ready to set people straight. Now, if you're thinking, that's a funny way to get about false doctrine. If you've ever gotten a little heated in a conversation about politics or economics, you too get fired up about false doctrine, right? We do this. And so you can catch Paul's energy and you can catch his passion by his language, right? It's a letter, that's what we have. And he uses incredible language like, I am astonished by you. I am perplexed by you. Ow. Who has bewitched you? Okay. Okay, Paul, we get it, right? And then he says, I implore you, please, listen, please. But then my favorite, where you really catch him, is way at the end of the letter, right? Where he signs off and says, look at what big letters I'm writing in. Okay, so this is really wonderful. So what this is, totally common practice, someone else probably wrote the whole body of the letter, and then often the primary author would step in to write the farewell, thanks so much, love Paul. But obviously, right, these letters were read, so the audience might not know that he took that extra effort to write it himself. So he not only wrote it himself, but wrote that he wrote it so that the audience would know. They would know this meant so much to him. And the size of his letters, all caps, right, matches the force of his conviction, right? Like he is so ready and desperate. And if he was desperate for them to know, then us too, right? Us too. This really matters that we understand and we embrace this teaching. So we move into Galatians, right? Now we're going to jump in at chapter 2, 15 to 21. And we're doing this because this section sort of rhetorically works as a, like a central affirmation of the whole letter, which is great. So it summarizes everything that came before and lays the foundational argument for everything that comes after. So if we can wrap our arms around this section, you really get the gist of the letter. There's a lot more detail and important texture that comes, but this section is our foundation. So we're going to kind of circle here for the rest of our time. And his, his passion, right at the top of this section, right? Like he starts off hard. So first, identification as a Jew. We're Jews, so it's him and Paul, right? Him and Peter. He's referencing the material above. We're Jews. So if anyone can talk to you about Torah, this guy, right? He's like, I know. But then he just backs into irony by saying, not a Gentile sinner, right? And so this would be like, a darn Yankee, right? This is a very colloquial, not great, not kind phrase. And he uses it deeply tongue-in-cheek because the majority of this letter, the whole point, is to try and emphasize that distinctions like Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, do not matter anymore. They have lost all their weight. So his, right, his attitude is right up front. It's wonderful. So he says, I'm a Jew, I'm not a Gentile sinner, even though that doesn't mean anything anymore. And he says, even we know 
Even we know that righteousness does not come through the law. And this is the first of two big points in this section, which again, tiny section, super compact. So the law is no longer the frame for righteousness. It was, but it is no longer. And then his second point that he'll end on is that we are only made worthy, we are made righteous as a result of Christ's gift, as a result of Christ giving himself for us. So let's bump back up to the law. So Paul approaches this redefining of the law in a few different ways that are great to catch and again shows how important this is to him. So first is to note as well that with the Torah, it was always the frame for righteousness. It was what you would look to to know, what am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to live? It wasn't grace, right? So grace is everywhere in Second Temple Judaism. It was totally common. The teaching was that grace came from God. Salvation came by God's grace. But then we follow the Torah in order to be made worthy of that grace, right? Remember Seneca's thing, the gift is only given to the worthy. So Paul is saying that was it, but it's not now. It's not the truth anymore. Now, he's not disparaging the law. This is also important. He's not saying anything disparaging about circumcision, about any of the Torah practices. He's just saying it's outdated. My favorite image from Barclay says that the law is now outdated currency, right? It was totally valid, legal tender, but now it is outdated, and it cannot buy you what you want from the store. It can't do it. Stop trying, right? That's what he's saying. It's just outdated. In fact, it's so outdated that then Paul flies into this, like, almost an argument ad absurdum, right? Just this absurd argument about Christ being a servant of sin. And I think this is another moment where you need to picture the audience for a second, right? So Paul lays out, well, according to the Torah, I'm a sinner because I fellowship with Gentiles. Christ told me to fellowship with Gentiles, so is Christ a servant of sin? And right, you have to, the audience, right? They're listening, they're following, their gears are turning, there's smoke coming out of their ears, right? Because they say, no, we know Christ isn't a servant of sin. We know that's not the answer, but we have no idea how we got here, right? They just no idea. I love it. So no, Christ is not a servant of sin. So something's changed. Something's radically changed. And it's changed because what the law did is it worked itself out of a job. And this is his next image, Right? The law was good, the law worked, but it worked so well, it worked itself out of the job. Because when Christ died on the cross, it fulfilled and satisfied the law itself. So it's done. It's just done. It can't tell you anymore what you're looking for. And it's in this image of the law dying on the cross that Paul pivots into his next point. He shifts our focus over to, okay, so if it's not the law anymore, then what is it? How do we know we're righteous? How do we know we're saved? Because nothing's free, right? How do we know? So Christ died according to the law, so now I am dead to the law. 
And this phrase might sound confusing, but we do this, right? If I say you're dead to me, right? No relationship, done. You're dead to me. This is him to the law. We are now dead to the law. But it wasn't just the law that died on the cross. He says, I did. You did. We did. We died on the cross too. So what I do do now, it's not me, right? I died on the cross too. So what I do live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So because I have died, it is not anything in me. It is nothing I can do that makes me worthy of the gift of Christ. And to be called righteous by faith is the result, right, is the result of Christ's gift, not the condition for it. It is just what happened because he sacrificed himself. You are now worthy and made righteous. And that righteousness, that gift is given to all equally. All equally. So to say that we've died to ourselves isn't just saying like, oh, I'm a little different. I see things a little differently. Right? So what Paul is really getting at is like our whole mode of existence is now radically shifted. Something completely inhuman, something completely miraculous happened at the crucifixion and resurrection, and it totally changes ourselves and our world around us. Because our life is now shaped by the life of another. It is now shaped by the life of Christ, right? His teachings, his crucifixion and resurrection, and his gift. And it's interesting, too, to note that in Galatians, it's actually the least amount of times Paul talks about the crucifixion and resurrection, and especially the least amount of times he talks about the resurrection. But it looms so large. And also, if you're reading and you ever notice, he mentions just crucifixion. It's almost like a shorthand. He's not deliberately splitting crucifixion and resurrection. He just kind of is referring to the whole Christ event of the crucifixion and resurrection and how it's in that event the gift was given and changed everything. Of existence is now changed. Our agency, right, our abilities are replaced and remade. Our old self was bound to death, bound to the culture's norms and society's hierarchies, right? It was trapped in our culture, and now those bonds are broken. Easter brought new life from death and brought us back to life in a new and powerful way. But Paul is very, very clear here that this new life bringing the kingdom of God onto earth isn't different just because we know in our hearts that we are worthy, that we are individually saved. That's not his end goal here. His end goal here is that because you know you're worthy by nothing having to do with you, the goal is to now go Go and build new communities. Make new bonds and connections. Show the love of Christ. Go out and do differently in this world now. Don't just hold it. Don't just sit with it. Go. So 
So remember those first century gifts I had you put over here? We're going to bring them back, okay? So there's two ways. There's actually like six ways, but we're going to do two. There's two ways that this gift of Christ, giving Christ's self for us, perfected this ancient practice of gift giving. Two things. It's the incongruity of the gift. One of my favorite things that Barclay writes in the book is that there is a shocking lack of match between the gift and the beneficiary. That's us. A shocking lack of match. This gift of Christ is so beyond us. We are so not worthy of it. But he gives it anyways. And he doesn't just give it sparingly with discernment. He gives it to all equally. The second he died and rose, he gave it to all equally. So when Paul says there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female, he's not saying those distinctions don't exist anymore. He's still a man. He's still a Jew. But what he's saying is those labels no longer hold weight. They don't mean anything anymore. All that matters is his identification as Christ and that through Christ's faithfulness, he was made worthy. The hierarchies and labels of our ambient culture are gone. So this is what Paul's saying. It is a completely incongruous gift. And here's the best one, is that this gift is uniquely reciprocal. It's not the very modern notion of a totally free gift, no strings attached. It's not that. It's also not the modern and ancient, nothing is free, super reciprocal gift. It lands somewhere very divinely in the middle. Because God does want something back from us. But what he wants back is only what he gave. He doesn't want back anything that's just us. But he says, what I give you, you need to give back and give out. And the beautiful thing is what he gave us is freedom. Right? He gave us freedom to say all these other things that I thought defined me and labeled me and labeled you and labeled them and labeled everybody. Everything I thought mattered so much. Free from it. You're free from the bonds of death. You're free from it. And so a natural response to receiving that gift, to receiving that freedom, is to live differently. Not to earn anything, right? But as a natural outgrowth. So Paul's big focus here, right, is that it's not about the gift being free, but it is about how the gift frees us. That's the beauty of it. Not that the gift is free, but that the gift frees us. Free to be a slave of Christ. Free to redefine who we are. Free to live our lives shaped by another. And most importantly for Paul, most importantly for the churches in Galatia who'd started splitting off, free to go and build new social bonds and connections, free to strengthen community in a community rooted in love, because after all, right, that's what gifts were meant to do. That was the point of them, even from the beginning. Let's pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of your Son.